It is good to be in church. Anybody excited to be in church this morning? The church doors are open. That is not to be minimized, especially in the reality that we are living in. How many of you brought one of these? Pull it out, pull it out, pull it out, open it up, open it up, open it up to Luke chapter 23. I will meet you there in just a moment as you're finding your place. I do want to thank you for taking the risk to come out of your house. You realize that's a risk, right? Uh, How many of you have heard the news? There's some news. um, There's a pandemic. Anybody hear about that lately? Um, And there are a variety of opinions about what we ought to be doing about that. And uh, there's no shortage of opinions in this room about what we should be doing, and even online. And I'm going to take a risk right now by just just briefly, let me just speak to the current reality here for a moment. Um, if you've been paying attention, you found out that starting tomorrow, uh, the governor here in Indiana has issued an executive order uh, that we're supposed to be wearing face coverings in uh, public and when you come indoors. And uh, there is an exemption in there for places of worship. And in that great news? As long as you're social distancing... You don't need to wear a face covering. How are we doing at that? Um, We're doing the best we can here. Listen, let me just say this, okay? As long as the church doors are open, there are going to be people here that cannot find a compelling reason to wear a face covering. And uh, that's fine. The doors are going to stay open. We're going to keep doing this. I don't want to get sick. I don't want you to get sick. I don't know about you. I made B's in biology, so I tend to listen to people that made A's in biology and try to take their counsel. And um, so as we get in this, let let me just know this. I want you to know this. There is a a pandemic that is much more dangerous than the coronavirus. The coronavirus cannot kill the church, but a spirit of division and arrogance can. And we're not going to let that happen here, okay? And so we want to make sure that we are a people that are saturated with the message of the cross of Christ. There has never been a time in the history of the world when the world needed to see and hear a group of humble, loving people who are committed to love one another well. And by that, Jesus said, they will know that we are his disciples. That's a new command. Did you know that? Jesus said, "Here's an, you want a new command? You want a new executive order? Jesus gave a new executive order. Love one another. That's the new executive order. And we want to do that well. So I don't know how you respond when people start asking you about your opinion. What do you know about microbiology? And what do you know about government executive orders? Here, here's what I'm committed to know. I'm committed to know Christ. And I'm going to follow in the pattern. I want to invite you to follow in the pattern that is set for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when the Apostle Paul said this. He said, I decided to know nothing. He just made that decision. It's like, I'm going to minimize everything else I know or what I think I know, and I'm going to maximize something that I ought to know. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So I want to invite you into the process to minimize what you think you know about everything else and maximize this, Jesus Christ and him crucified. It is only a cross-centered people that will ultimately have the right incentive to love Christ, to be humble, to be discerning, and love one another. John Stott wrote a classic book on the cross of Christ, and in it he said this, the same cross of Christ 
which is the ground of free salvation, is also the most powerful incentive to live a holy life. So I've got about 40 minutes this morning to elevate the cross of Christ. And against that 40 minutes is a tidal wave of talk radio and cable news and conversations around coffee shops, around everything else we know. I want to invite you in to stare with me for a few minutes this morning at the cross of Christ. You've got your Bible open to Luke chapter 23, and last week we learned about the trial of Jesus. We had to make a verdict. We found out that there was a criminal, Barabbas, who was set free, and Jesus died on his cross in his place as a substitute for his sin. And by that, Jesus set the president for what he has done for every true believer in him. That's the only message we have is the message of the cross. It's just on repeat around here. If you came to church looking for some self-help and some encouragement, come on, do better, be encouraged. It's, it's all going to pass. This is not the right church for you. We are here to exalt the work of Christ on a cross in my place as a substitute for my sin, knowing that three days later he rose to save all who would repent and believe. That is the only message we have. So this morning, as we look at the scripture, I want you to meet four characters that accompanied Jesus on the way to the cross. The first of them is an innocent bystander. We're going to meet him here in verse 26. And we're going to ask a question with each of these characters. Here's the first question. Does the weight of the cross still change me daily? That's our question. Let's meet this innocent bystander in Luke 23, verse 26. As they led him away. We can pause right there. Jesus is being led away from the trials. He's already been beaten. He's already been mocked. He's already been punched in the face, blindfolded. They ask him, if you're a prophet, tell us who struck you. If he had answered that question, he would have had to answer, he would have had to name every person in this room because ultimately Jesus was bearing the weight of my sin with each pain, with each bruise, with each drop of blood. He was paying the price for my sin. And they led him away, which prompts a question. Who was leading him away? Another question would be, who killed Jesus? You might say, well, it was, the, it was the religious leaders, the Jewish authorities that saw him as a threat to their religious power, and so they killed Jesus. Another semi-right answer would be the Romans. They saw him as a threat to their kingdom. He claimed to be a king, and so the Romans killed Jesus, ish. Uh, some of you more theologically discerning people would say, wait, 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 it, it's all of us. We killed Jesus. It was our sin that nailed him there, and that would be theologically accurate. But do you know what the most accurate answer to the question, who killed Jesus, is? God the Father killed God the Son on the cross as a payment for the sin of of all who would believe. In Isaiah chapter 53, the scripture tells us that it pleased God to bruise Jesus. With every bruise that appeared upon the body of Christ, it brought a certain kind of pleasure to the Father as Jesus was absorbing the full weight of God's wrath 
on sin. If you've ever tried to minimize how much God hates sin, behold the bruises of Jesus on the cross. So the scripture says here, they led him away. And it would appear that Jesus is now under the control of those that hate him. It would appear that Jesus has lost control. And yet, we know from the book of John, this saying from Jesus, he said, no one takes my life, I lay it down of my own accord. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not losing control. I have not lost control of the situation. Everything that's going to happen to Jesus is authorized by Jesus. And so we see they led him away. And then it says they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. At this point, Jesus has been given a piece of timber. We know that the cross had a vertical piece of timber and a horizontal piece of timber. In reality, what we know from ancient crucifixions, it was actually probably more like a T than what we think of as a cross. And Jesus was given probably the, ver- the horizontal timber to actually carry to the place where the vertical timber would await him at the place of his execution. That piece of timber would have weighed about 200 pounds. And after Jesus has been up all night, after he'd been beaten, after he'd been whipped, he is made to carry this vertical or this horizontal piece of timber to meet the vertical piece of timber. And yet he could no longer carry it. Maybe as it tumbled under him, on top of him, as he stumbled through the streets, those Roman soldiers, they grabbed a man out of the crowd, an innocent bystander named Simon. Now, what's interesting is that Luke, who's recording this, knows his name. How would Luke know his name. Now, remember, Luke is not there. He's getting his information from eyewitnesses who were there, and somehow Simon is actually known, even though what we're told here from Luke is Simon was just coming into town. God orchestrated the events that the exact geographical territory of where Simon was standing and the exact geographical territory where Jesus would intersect with him was all sovereignly arranged. The Bible tells us that Simon is from a place called Cyrene. Cyrene is a city in northern Africa. Simon's skin color was a lot closer to Stephen Love's than Trent Griffith's, okay? This was a black man. He's from northern African. He was there in the crowd. He was coming into the city. Simon is actually a Jewish name, so that we, we, we think he's a Jewish man from a Jewish community. Why was he there? He wasn't there to meet Jesus. He was there for the reason everybody else was there, to celebrate the Jewish Passover. He'd come on a long journey. He was there to celebrate. And as he's coming into town, he runs right in to the crucified Christ, and he is made to bear the weight of that cross. Do you know that that intersection with Jesus, encountering the cross of Christ, changed Simon's life forever? 
The reason we know his name is because he became likely a very prominent figure in first century Christianity. The last couple of verses of the book of Romans, we're told who his family was. As a matter of fact, as Mark is recording this, he says, Simon of Cyrene, the father of, of Rufus and Alexander. We know his two kids. And then Paul, as he's writing to the Roman church in the last chapter of his book, it says, greet Rufus and his mother who was like a mother to me. Are you making the family tree connections here? Simon is the father of Rufus, who's a prominent member of the early church, the son of Simon. And Rufus's mother, which would have been Simon's wife, is like a mother to the Apostle Paul. The, in the book of Acts, we're told that um, there were a group of missionaries that left Cyrene to go plant the church in Antioch, which became the place where these followers of Jesus were first called Christians. You connect all the dots, and do you know what we understand about Simon? Simon never got over the cross. He never heard Jesus preach. He'd never met Jesus except when he was forced to carry his cross. Simon is so impacted, he becomes a missionary to preach the message of the cross that has global ramifications. That's the guy that was pulled out of the crowd. Do you understand? Simon is the portrait of every true disciple of Jesus. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, the scripture tells us this, quoting from Jesus, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's exactly what Simon did. Literally, he took up the cross of Christ, and the, the scripture is very specific. He followed behind Christ on his way to the cross. That is the picture of genuine Christianity. If you heard the story of the cross in vacation Bible school or as a little one as your parents told you about it, if this message seems really familiar to you and you're tempted to check out wanting some deeper truth, you've missed the whole purpose and power of the message of the cross. You cannot come under the weight of the cross without it completely changing the direction of your life. And so my question to you is this, is the weight of the cross still changing you? Is it still compelling you to live a holy, godly life? Will you carry the weight of the cross knowing that Jesus bore the weight of your sin? And understand this, there are no random encounters with Jesus. God orchestrated that whole thing so that his geographical location would intersect with the geographical location of Jesus. And this morning, you are intersecting with the message of the cross. I believe God has orchestrated this so that we can come under the weight of the cross so that it changes the way we live on Tuesday afternoon at 3.30, not just on Sunday morning when we're seated in church. Here's the second character I want you to meet. I want you to meet the sympathetic women. And the question is this, does averted judgment still move me 
beyond sympathy. The story picks up in verse 27. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Now, you have to understand something about ancient Jewish culture. Remember, the Jews were living under an oppressive government. The Roman government was occupying the land of the Jews. And it was not uncommon for Romans to kill Jews. And the Jewish people never wanted a Jewish person to die without a proper lamenting and sadness and mourning associated with the death. They didn't want to trivialize anyone's death. So there were a professional group of women that would show up, just is kind of part of the funeral package. The, the, the women would show up and they would mourn and they would weep over this Jewish man who was being killed by occupying Rome. So these women show up at Jesus' death. And Jesus is not a fan of sympathy. Notice in verse 28, but turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Why is he telling them that? Because these were not women who actually understood the power of the cross. They didn't understand what was happening. They didn't understand that Jesus was dying under the weight of the judgment of God to pay the penalty for sin. Therefore, they were unconverted women, which means judgment was coming. And he actually describes the judgment that's coming. It's rated PG. Brace yourselves. The next couple of verses are brutal. Verse 29, Behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs which never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? He's using a metaphor there of timing. When wood is wet, it doesn't burn. But you let it set around for a little while, it gets dry, and it becomes kindling for fire, which is a picture of judgment. What Jesus is prophesying here is this. About 40 years after Jesus dies, Jerusalem will fall under the judgment of God. And all those who are unconverted will never have hope of having a kingdom relationship with Christ. Jesus is telling them this. I don't need or want your sympathy. Don't weep for me. I'll be fine. Weep for yourselves. Jesus doesn't want our sympathy. Jesus wants our worship. He wants our submission. And so the question is this. Do you have more than a sentimental, sympathetic relationship with Jesus? That cross that Jesus bore is not some sentimental icon. It's, it's not a piece of jewelry. It's not a piece of decor to beautify our homes and our churches. I know some churches, especially Catholic churches, the whole church architecture is made out into a cross. And it's fine to, you know, have jewelry and it's, it's fine to have 
crosses, but we never want to trivialize the cross because the cross is not some sympathetic motivational tool for us so that we'll somehow identify with the poor, lowly Jesus who's being killed. Jesus wants our worship. He, he gave us two symbols so that we would remember what happened on the cross, not, not a piece of wood. He gave us bread and wine. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're actually going to do that next week together, so come prepared to celebrate that. But Christians are those who understand that judgment has been averted because of what Jesus did on the cross. We don't weep out of sorrow that judgment's coming. We weep out of worship because we know the love and the grace and the forgiveness that is made available at the cross. These women didn't understand that. So we have to move beyond just sentimental, shallow, nominal understanding about some cross history that happened 2,000 years ago. Here's the third character I want you to meet. I want you to meet the forgiving father. And the question is this. Do I still know how much pain my sin caused Jesus as he secured my salvation? Verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. Let's just stop right there. It mentions here a particular place where Jesus was crucified. Um, Calvary, Golgotha is another named. Here, Luke gives us the literal name. It means the place of the skull, and we don't really understand what that means unless you've actually been to Jerusalem. About three years ago, I went to Jerusalem for the first time, and they took me to a place, and they showed me a cliff. It's kind of hard to see now because there's a bus station that somebody's built in front of it. It's kind of hard to see. But there was a picture that was taken of this cliff back in the 1940s. I'll show you that picture. And if you look real close, it's not hard to see the place of the skull. And we don't exactly know where Jesus died, but quite likely on that hill was the place where they crucified Jesus. I want you to notice what the Bible actually records about the crucifixion. Get your eyes on the page and notice the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is exclusively described with only three words. They crucified Him. There's no mention of nails. There's no mention of a hammer. There's no mention of Roman soldiers pounding Jesus' hands and feet into the wood of the cross. It just simply says, they crucified him. It's brief. It's almost as if it's censored. Because if it was actually described, it would turn our stomachs. Luke could have been a lot more graphic, but he didn't need to because everybody that was reading this knew about crucifixion. Crucifixion was likely invented by the Persians. It was used 
a lot by Alexander the Great, but it was perfected by the Romans. Historians tell us that as many as 30,000 Jews were crucified under Roman oppression in the first century when Jesus lived. Everyone who was crucified was put on open public display. It was, it was meant to be a deterrent against rebellion against the Roman Empire. Everyone who was crucified was first beaten and flogged with something that is known as a cat of nine tails. That cat of nine tails would have had a, a large handle on the end of it, and off the end of that handle would have been nine large, thick pieces of leather. Interwoven in the letter, leather would have been pieces of metal, bone, and glass. And it wasn't meant just to sting, it was meant to rip flesh. Those nine leather straps were thrown across Jesus' back and then drug across the back with it pulling off large sections of flesh. Jesus was beaten 39 times with that cat of nine tails. And we are told that after that, he went to the place where those Roman soldiers would attach his body to that cross. Many times, it wasn't done with nails, it was done with ropes. The longer they wanted the criminal to hang there, maybe days or weeks, they would just use ropes. If they wanted him to die quickly, they would do something that would cause greater pain and accelerate the death process. With Jesus, we know that his hands and feet were nailed because Thomas said, I want to see the nail prints in his hands. And so those Roman soldiers took those nails and they drove them somewhere between the, the wrist and the palms at an angle positioned so that it would hit the nerve endings as it went through both the left and the right, and then, of course, his feet. And then as he lay there on those two pieces of timber the, that was raised, erected in front of a hole, maybe four feet deep, and then it was shoved into the hole so that when it dropped and hit the ground, it would jar those nerve endings. It would rip that rough wood on his back and the splinters would go into his back, which at this point probably looked like a piece of raw hamburger meat, and he hung there, and he bled, and he cried, and he endured pain. And as he was doing that, not only did he experience the physical pain, but he experienced something he had never experienced in all of eternity past. He experienced the pain, the spiritual pain of being separated for the first time from his father, they crucified him. And what did he say? Verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. My question to you is, do you still know how much pain your sin caused Jesus as he secured your forgiveness. He prayed, he interceded, interceded for those who were actually responsible for him hanging there. You see, the cross calls me 
not only to appreciate the forgiveness that I've been granted, the cross calls me now to turn that forgiveness horizontally to others. I am called to bend the blessing and the grace of God's, fer- of, of God's vertical forgiveness. I'm called to bend that horizontally toward others who sin against me. You've heard the phrase, hurt people, hurt people. Are we not seeing a picture of that every time we turn on the news? We see the anger and the fury and the vitriol and and the vilifying of anyone who doesn't agree with us. Hurt people hurt people. But forgiven people forgive people. Until you are brought to your knees with the fact that every sin you have committed against God has been fully and freely forgiven at the cross. Until that weight bears on your soul, you will make every person pay for every sin they commit against you. But if you understand that the Father has fully forgiven you because of the cross of Christ, you will bend the blessing out to others. You say, Trent, you don't know what they did to me. You you don't know the abuse. You don't know the slander. You don't know how I've been cheated. You don't know how I've been neglected. You're right. I do not know. But I do know what you, by your sin, have done to Christ. You nailed him to a cross. You murdered the Son of God. And yet, on that cross, he interceded for you. He prayed and said, Father, forgive them. I don't know what face comes to mind, what name comes to mind when you think about your enemies, people that have hurt you, sinned against you, neglected you. I don't know what kind of disappointment and failure your father, your mother, your sister, your brother, your pastor. I don't know who's hurt you. But I do know this. If you know Christ, you are called from the cross of Christ to fully forgive every person of every sin as a cross-centered follower of Christ. Do you know how much sin, how much pain your sin has caused Christ as he secured your forgiveness? If you know that, you'll have the power to forgive others. Here's the fourth person we're going to meet. I want you to meet the kingdom-bound criminal. And our question is, am I still trying to save Myself. Verse 35. And the people stood by watching, and the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, these were the Jews, they, they were concerned that he claimed to be the Christ. The Jews, they weren't concerned about that claim, they were concerned that he claimed to be the king. So in verse 36, it says, The soldiers, the Roman soldiers, also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. So they said, Save yourself. Not understanding that if he chose to save himself, he wouldn't be able to save any of them. But because he chose not to save himself, he could save all those who will admit they can't save themselves. And so we're introduced to these two criminals. 
Who are these criminals? We don't really know what their crimes were. We, we like to refer to them as thieves, but it just says criminal. We don't know what they stole. They were probably accomplices of Barabbas. Remember Barabbas? These three guys probably traveled in a mob, and they were bent on overthrowing the Roman government. You remember, as we talked about last week, Jesus wasn't supposed to be there. The cross he was dying on was actually the cross of Barabbas, but Jesus was dying in the place of Barabbas, and so he becomes the picture for the fact that he's done that for each one who will believe. He's dying in my place as my substitute for my sin. So you got these three guys on the cross there. I want you to notice something about both of the criminals on each side of Jesus. Both of the criminals ask Jesus for salvation, but Jesus only saved one of them. Notice here in verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. I would venture to say that almost everybody in this room has prayed a prayer like that. You ever been there? You're like, um, you're, you're like, you're in a bad spot. You don't have anywhere else to turn. You're, you've been nailed. Maybe you're suffering under the weight of the consequences of your sin, and you're looking for any way out, and there are no other options. And so eventually, even if you were an atheist at the time, you say, God, get me out of this. If there is a God, if you are Christ and you claim to be so powerful, if you claim to be the Christ, you claim to be the king, then why, it would, this would be a good time now, God, to exercise some of the power you say you have and get me out of here. Anybody ever prayed a prayer like that? Yeah. God sometimes answers that prayer. Not always, but some, are you grateful that sometimes God like, hears an ignorant prayer sometimes and answers that, right? And maybe that's the reason you're still here today. But I want you to notice a deeper level of prayer from the other criminal. Notice the difference in their actions. Notice in verse 40. But the other one rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? No, he didn't. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Verse 42, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The first thing that this criminal does is he acknowledges the fear of God. The fear of God is the realization, first of all, that you are not God. Have you had that realization yet? You are not God. And that there is a God to whom you will be accountable. That's called the fear of God. This criminal acknowledges, I know there's a God out there. And the second thing he does is he acknowledges that he's broken God's law. He's like, we are receiving the due reward of our crimes. That's a statement of humility. That's a statement of confession, which is what is necessary for us to be saved by Christ. He realizes he can't save himself. He cannot go to church. He can't be baptized. He can't give any money. He can't even be, improve his behavior because he can't move. All of which are pictures of all of us who cannot save ourselves. We, we are immobilized to do anything to improve our spiritual condition. Our only hope is that Jesus would do something we can't do to save us. And that is the attitude of this criminal. And then notice, he asked 
Jesus for something that is absolutely undeserved. Remember, he's a criminal. And he says, hey, Jesus, could you, would, would you, would, would you just remember me? Just, just remember me. When you come into your kingdom, he acknowledges Jesus is a king with a kingdom. He understands Jesus is going to live beyond the cross in a kingdom as a king. He doesn't even ask him to be a part of the kingdom. He just says, when you get there, could you, could you just remember me? And Jesus pours out overwhelming grace to the guy and says, not only will I remember you, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to grant access to you into the kingdom. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Interesting word, right? What's paradise? Anybody think of a tropical island when you think of paradise? Yeah, what's well, better than that, okay? This is what theologians call the intermediate state. This is before the final judgment, the final kingdom. But what happens when people die today before Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom? In between that is what we would call paradise. And we don't even really know much about it. All we know is this. According to Jesus, Paradise is wherever Jesus is, and wherever Jesus is is where I'm going to be when I'm dead, if you belong to Christ. That's great news, right? And then when the kingdom comes, we're a part of that too. So the kingdom is, paradise is part of the kingdom. We're going to get to realize it, those of us who realize we can't save ourselves. Understand that Jesus loves to save those who can't save themselves. Luke is famous for recording all of the outcasts, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the outlaws, the demon-possessed peoples. Those were the people that Jesus loved to save. And to understand those were people that couldn't save themselves. This is what you might call a deathbed conversion. You ever, you ever know somebody that made a deathbed conversion? Anybody know the story of Mickey Mantle? Remember the famous baseball player, Mickey Mantle? He's from Oklahoma, by the way. All good baseball players from Oklahoma. And uh, Mickey Mantle, um, he, he lived a horrible life. He was a drunkard. He was a womanizer. But he had a teammate named Bobby Richardson who was a follower of Christ. And just within the last couple of years of Mickey Mantle's life, he presented the gospel to him. Mickey Mantle gave his life to Christ, and he only had about six weeks but he had a deathbed conversion. Listen, Jesus can save anybody at any time. Now listen, d don't make a deathbed conversion your model of conversion. Um, that's a bad model. The reason is this. Th this guy was a criminal. We don't know what he stole, but we do, we do, we do know one thing he stole. He stole years from being a God-glorifying Christ follower. Those, all those years that he waited, all those years he didn't give his life to Christ, he stole glory from God. Don't do that. Today, you can know Christ. Now, if you grew up in a Catholic tradition, you, you, you probably have never been told. You can know that if you die today, you can go to heaven. But so many people are like, man, I got to make sure that like, I pray like in the last second, and I get the last rites, get the last thing to wipe away all that sin and stuff. Listen, for if you know Christ, all your sin, past, present, and future is wiped away, not because of your behavior or your prayer, or your goodness, your church going, but because of what Christ did on the cross 2,000 years ago. And today, you can be in 
the kingdom of God. Not in purgatory. It doesn't say that today. Not halfway. You're not good enough to go to heaven, but you're not quite bad enough to go to hell, so there's this thing in between. The Bible doesn't teach that. Jesus told this dude, today you're going to be with me in the kingdom, in paradise. That's the good news of the gospel. Now, there is one more character in the story. It's the most important character. And I just put it on here because I don't want you to miss it. This, this is not about weeping women. This is not about an innocent bystander. It's, it's not about a criminal. It's about Christ. And so I want you to meet the crucified Christ. Here's the question. Are you still living for him today? Do you understand what he's done for you? Galatians chapter 5 says this, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Question, in church, be honest. Anybody here have any passions? Raise your hand if you have some passions. And, and keep your hand in the air if all your passions are godly, okay? Yeah. yeah, there's some ungodly passions in here. And Jesus says people who meet the crucified Christ will live a crucified life. They will live to glorify Christ and crucify unchrist-like attitudes and hatred and, and lust and sin. That is the passion of a Christ, of a Christ followers to live a life just crucified for Christ. So when you read this story, do you yawn your way through it and say, I've heard this, and yeah, Jesus died on the cross. You've said that so many times. Or does it fuel you? to live a holy life. Jesus is still warning that he wants more than a sentimental, sympathetic relationship. Jesus is still inviting criminals like you and me to come with the full assurance that you can be forgiven. Christ still prays that God the Father will forgive those who don't know what they're doing by their sin. I want to invite you even today to renew and refresh your passion for Christ. The team's going to come out here and we're going to sing one more time. Some of you know this, but have I ever told you that I have a degree in technology from in 1989? I have a degree in 1980s technology. Are you impressed by that? Yeah. Yeah, so, so one of the things that I used to do in the computer lab is, is, you know, as you were programming my COBOL computer language, it was programming these HP 3000 computers, these big computers that take up a room, you know, that, you know, are not as powerful as your Apple Watch now. So anyway, I was, I was be programming these things. One of the things I had to do was like learn how to justify letters in a sentence so that they all take up equal space. And I would, I, I had a template that I would always put, I would always put in the lyrics to a hymn. And the hymn that I would always put in was when I survey the wondrous cross on which the king of glory died. I want us to sing that here at the end of the service. But I want to invite you to stand here. I want you to bow your heads. I want to pray for us. If you've yet to meet the crucified Christ at the end of the service, there'll be pastors and elders and wives and counselors down here. They would love to introduce you to Jesus. If you're struggling in your heart to forgive someone who is sinning against you, we'd love to be able to pray with you. If there's an attitude of anger and hatred or fear because of what's going on in the culture right now, why don't you come and be humbled at the foot of the cross
adopt the posture of Christ who surrendered his rights, who humbled himself, who trusted himself to God. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, thank you for sending your son to die on the cross as payment for our sin. And I pray that the weight of that reality would be just as real as it was for Simon who crawled up under that, bit, that timber. I pray that for every true disciple, they would understand it is non-negotiable to take up our cross daily, to crucify our passions and lusts. I pray that we would never move away from the weight of the cross. We pray in Jesus' name.